So we come now to the scripture. Let me ask you, please, um, to pray with me. Our Father in heaven, I pray that now as we come to your word, that you would awaken our minds and hearts in a way that enables us to listen and to delight in your word. Please, I pray, Holy Spirit, um, give us good attention. Cause us to be eager to know um, what it is that you're saying to us. And enable us to hear and believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Nehemiah in chapter 11. Nehemiah in chapter 11, please. I'm actually going to read the first two verses. We'll see what else is there in a moment, but I just want to begin there. Uh, Nehemiah 11, verses 1 and 2, please. This is the word of the Lord. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring uh, one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now, I want to begin like this. I want to ask the question. How do we approach something like this as we're reading through the scripture? How, how do we approach um, this, this piece of Nehemiah? What we have here really is a, is a declaration, is a word that they're repopulating the city of Jerusalem. If you remember, the Israelites had been exiled, you know. They came back. Those God had worked in their hearts to return. And they came back to, 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 to really the areas of Judah and ancient Judah, and, and uh, the city especially, they were around the city, but no one had yet populated the city. They had rebuilt the temple, but no one lived in the city save for some of the leaders as we have here. And so here we have this word that they're going to repopulate the city. In fact, with the leaders who are there, they cast lots and chose one out of ten of all the other people that lived in the surrounding areas, uh, there would be probably 5,000 plus people uh, to come into Jerusalem. Uh, 50,000 perhaps around there. Some estimate more, but at least that many. So 5,000 moving into the city. And they were blessed. They were commended for being willing to do that. And that seems like a sacrifice to move because your number came up uh, to move into the city. Uh, but yet it would be a great blessing as well. Lots of work to be done. The houses had yet to be rebuilt, as we learned from chapter 7 in Nehemiah. But, but, but they were going back to rebuild the city uh, and to watch, particularly, over the temple. As we look down the page, we realize that in verse 4, And in Jerusalem lives certain of the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. And then we go off from verse 4 through verse 9, kind of laying out who those sons of Benjamin and sons of Judah were. Ancient tribe names, Benjamin and Judah. And that's who were settling, resettling back with the Levites, as we'll see. And there were a few others. Tribes mentioned in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, which is another detail of this situation. But, But we have... 
these leaders from Judah and Benjamin. And then verse 10, there's the priests who we see work in the, uh, do the work in the house of the Lord or the, the temple. And then the Levites who, uh, who, who work outside, uh, of the house, uh, of God outside of the temple. We'll see those Levites actually, um, worked in such a way as to make the works of the, the work of the priest, um, Doable, And then the gatekeepers, they would watch over the various courts and the various gates uh, in the temple area to make sure only the right people got in various places and the wrong people didn't get in and so forth. So again, how do we really approach this repopulation of Jerusalem? We could simply skip it, which is what I generally do when I'm teaching through Nehemiah, but this time I felt guilty, so I thought I shouldn't. Uh, and I should look a little harder. And so, uh, because it is a, a necessity, if, if, if we're going to move on from where they've come, from their exile, to move back, they really do need to repopulate the city. And so, we could just say, it's just a nicety, it just helps move the, the story along, and we can go to something that seems a little more exciting. But, I think there's something here. Now, as I mentioned, as we started uh, Nehemiah, the various ones approach this book in, in, in sort of what they refer to typically as sort of practical ways. That is, ways that we can see something and put into practice. Generally, what that means is that we study the book of Nehemiah to learn leadership principles, or we study the book of Nehemiah to learn how to be, how to be uh, uh, persevering, uh, we study the book of Nehemiah to, 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 to implement uh, his, his wisdom, his godliness, and all of that. And that's fine. Uh, but I think there might be a better way. But these, these, I could give you some titles of commentaries that I have in my library. And I bought these, and I've read them. Because I know the authors. Not personally, but I, I know them. And they're good. They're people I trust. And uh, so I read them. We're trying to get an idea about how to approach... Um, these sermons, uh, one of them is entitled Excellence in Leadership, Reaching Our Goals with Prayer, Courage, and Determination. A great title. And, and you can, you can get the sense of what, what you would read in that, that book. There's this sense of, 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 of leadership principles and how do we reach our goals? Good goals, godly goals. How do we reach our goals? Uh, through prayer, Nehemiah prayed. Uh, through courage, uh, Nehemiah wasn't afraid in the face of opposition. And through determination, he stuck to it. And so you get the sense of what that is going to be. There's a, another one I have that's simply called Be Determined. Right? Not to be determined. Like, nothing in the book. But but this is how we're to live. We're to be determined uh, as we live. And so you get the sense, too, there that uh, we're to stick to it. And, and then another one called Victorious Christian Service. Well, Nehemiah served well and... The walls got rebuilt, and so there seemed to be a sense of victory. And so if I ask you the question, do you want to live the victorious Christian life and serve God well? You'd say yes, and they'd say, well, read Nehemiah, and you'll get that. Uh, there's another one entitled, Doing a Great Work. Nehemiah did a great work. And so is that why we're to read Nehemiah, to learn how we too can do great works? And then the title I love the best is simply this, Hand Me Another Brick. 
and you, you, you sort of get the sense of that, you know. Basically, uh, as you read through it, you understand this author sees Nehemiah as, as living and being determined and persevering. And the way he got this wall built was brick upon brick upon brick. And that's how we're to live our lives, you see. We're to live our lives in such a way that it's, it's a dailiness of just simply doing what God has given our hands to do and to live our lives. And after a while, you'll see, oh, the wall's done. Wow. And there's a sense in which the Christian life can, can look like that. Sometimes people ask me how it is that I've stayed in one place for so long. Uh, and, and I always look puzzled and simply say, well, I don't know. You know, week after week after week, long enough, you look back and it's been 27 years. Uh, you know, that sort of hand me another brick. It's sort of the way I understand that way of living of just, one day at a time, one whatever your God gives you to do, do it. Oh, that's great. But as I shared with you as we began, I, I, I don't think those are the best approaches. I don't, I don't negate them because the people who wrote these books are better. Than, I never wrote a book, right? And I actually bought their book because I trusted them. And I still do. I still trust them. I've read them. I've gained something. But I don't think that's the best approach. I think there's something else. Because what astounded me is when I looked at another author that I really trust um, for this chapter about repopulating the city of Jerusalem. That chapter was entitled Urban Renewal. And any, if I told you the name of I won't, but if I told you the names, many of you recognize the name, and I've quoted him in other contexts favorably. But <clears throat> I was just surprised. But, but there's this sense in which we, we, we're trying to, to read the scripture and then come up with the answer to this question, now what should I do? Years ago, I was in a conversation with an, an old pastor who was younger than I am now. And um, he, uh, I, I, he said to me, he said, he says, Bill, this is what, this is the question that everyone wants you to answer for them when you're preaching. He says, the question everybody wants you to answer for them while, when, while you're preaching is, this question, what should I do? That's, that's what's in everybody's minds. Cut to the chase. All right, what do I need to do here? And he looked at me and smiled with a little twinkle in his eye. And he said, generally, don't tell them. Tell them what Christ has done. And see, very often we, we, we read the scripture and we're asking that question, what should I do? That's not a bad question because there's stuff that the scripture tells us to do. But we mustn't miss the precursor to that, the thing that fuels our doing. And that is what Christ has done. And so from that point on, and in my mind, as others have reinforced, that as I read the scripture, I must always be thinking, what does this tell me about God? What does it tell me about what Christ has done? And then I can get to the doing myself of it. And my fear is so often we read passages like this or books like Nehemiah, and we think, oh, I need to emulate him. Go ahead, that's a great thing. But is that the point of it? Is that the point of it? For instance, this author that writes about this chapter of repopulating Jerusalem as, as a sense of urban renewal, his point is this. Most people live in cities. 
Therefore, what we ought to do is make sure that Christians move into cities and make sure that the Christians who move into cities established real churches through which the gospel is preached and good and lives are lived in such a way that will draw people to Christ. And of course, he's exactly right. I mean, Christians, Brittany is going to a place to gather with other people there who are going to that place and they're going to establish Christians there, their Christian life there. To hopefully over time, they'll have opportunities to spread the gospel in such a way. What a good mission strategy. There's no question about that. My question is, is that what this is about? Because if it isn't, then I've missed the point of this passage. So I've not really heard God. So how is it that we approach a passage like this? Well, I think this might help. As we read through this, the first thing that we see in the repopulation of, of Jerusalem isn't that this is simply any city. It's that it's Jerusalem. I mean, when you read Jerusalem in the Bible, bells and whistles should go off. Right? This is Jerusalem. There's something about this moment in the arc of redemptive history and the overview of what God is doing in the world. There's something about it in this particular place and this particular time. Remember, they were exiles, they come back, and now they're repopulating the city of David, the city of the great king, this, the holy city, the city of God. That, that should tell us something right off the bat. This, is, this isn't just sending people to London in 2016 or sending people to LA. This is Jerusalem, 5th century BC, what's, what's going on? And then we realize the people who are repopulating the city, these are the sons of Judah and the sons of Benjamin. When you read in the scripture, especially in these days, anything about Judah and Benjamin, again, bells and whistles should go off in your head. Because we realize these aren't just any tribes, it's just isn't any group of people, but this tribe of Judah is David's people. And they're repopulating the city of Jerusalem. Now, do you remember? This is, this, this is a passage that makes me smile when I read it. Um, 2 Samuel in chapter 7. Here's the situation. Um, David, things have gone well for King David. And he's thinking about his life. And he realizes that he's living in luxury in this palace. And he gets this idea. And the idea is this. I'm going to build a house for God. And he tells Nathan the prophet, and the prophet goes, all right. Until God speaks to Nathan. Listen to what happens. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Well, I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say, Thus says the Lord of hosts. I'm sorry, verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep, that you, sh uh, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, 
like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be distributed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people, Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Did you get that? He says, I will make you a house. This is how this works, David. I don't need anything you do. You don't supply to me, I supply to you. You want to make me a house? Think about it. Has it ever worked that way? Didn't I take you? Didn't I make you prince? Didn't I make you king? I'm going to establish your house. It's what God does, you see. One of my verses I live off of is Psalm 81.10. You've heard me say this before. It's this verse, uh, Psalm 81.10. The psalmist writes, quoting God, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. That's the way it works. That's our posture before God. We stand with our mouths wide open. He fills it. Not the other way around. So the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offering after you. Who shall come from your body? And I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure for, forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. You see, what's going on here? Isn't simply the repopulation of a city for mission. Oh, the mission will come. But, but it's the repopulation of the city of Jerusalem and the leaders there from the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And they would be thinking, there are those among us from David. And God made a promise that he would establish David's throne forever. And here that is. Don't you wonder that when they were in exile, they were wondering, what's going to happen to us as a people? But there they were still, the people of Judah and the people of Benjamin. I mean, it seemed, if you read Old Testament history, it seemed that Every nation was against them to annihilate them. And even God punished them in various ways by nations coming in and and exiling them. But still, there they were. Don't you think at that moment in time, there was this incredible joy as they looked around and they said, Do you know what's happening? The city of Jerusalem is being, the city of Jerusalem is being repopulated by the tribes of David, a king. Forever on his throne. It's happening. And then the priests were established and named, and they would work in the house. And we know what happened by the priests. It would be the priests who would enable, if you will, through their ministry, uh, to have God dwell among the midst of the people. 
We know that in the temple there would be various courts. And over time there was a court of the Gentiles, you remember, because the house of God was to be a house of prayer for all the nations, Jeremiah says and Jesus quotes. And so we get it that the Gentiles were allowed into the first court and then the court of the women and then the court of the men, but then the court of the priests. And that court had the most holy place in it. And it was that place that the high priest would enter once a year with the blood of this goat in order to atone for the sins of people. That was the place where God dwelt among his people. And so there's a sense that they're seeing this this temple built, and yes, now the priesthood being reestablished. And what would that mean? It would mean, wait a minute. God is dwelling among us. Don't you think that when they were in the exile, they would wonder, is that ever going to happen? They went... 70 years without sacrifices. 70 years without assurance that their sins would be forgiven. 70 years without knowing the presence of God among them like that. And now here they are. Don't you think they're beginning to realize what's happening here? This isn't just repopulating a city. This isn't just urban renewal. This isn't just even mission. Something's happening here that's, that's, that's profound in their lives and will be for ours in a minute, but profound for them. And then the Levites are established, especially the gatekeepers, because you see, the gatekeepers were important to, 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 to make sure that, that each court and especially this most holy place was, was guarded well. And only the right people at the right time would Go there. And so you see, in the midst of all of this, God is saying, I'm in your midst again. I dwell in your midst. And of course, God is everywhere. But when he says he dwells somewhere, he means this is my place. This is where I belong. I belong with you. You belong with me. You're blessed like no other nation. Here I am. I am your God. You are my people. I'm going to protect you and provide for you and bless you and keep you. My face will shine upon you. I'll be gracious to you. I'll give you peace. That's all that they're sensing, seeing in the midst of this repopulation of the city. They would begin to live in this joyful anticipation of what's to come. And you say, well, what's practical about that? Well, everything. I mean, that's sort of the fuel that fuels everything else. This hope, this deep, joyful anticipation. Someone from the throne of David to be here forever. The priest God is in our place. He's present with us. We will have peace. A day will come when even the nations will come to us. Well, that would be for them, for us. While they lived in the joyful anticipation of what is to come, we live in the joyful realization of what has come. Christ has come. You see, this temple and all that was there was simply a shadow. Now, you know, when there's a shadow, there's a reality. If you see your shadow on the sidewalk, it means the sun's in a particular place and it's hitting your body and it's casting a shadow. Somebody saw the shadow, they would say, someone is there. Right? That's what makes horror movies so amazing. Because <laughs> you only see the shadow. And you know somebody's there. 
right? And of course, shadows are helpful, but not perfect. I mean, you can't see everything exactly. You can't know everything exactly. If you see your own shadow, I, I love my shadow because it's tall and thin. <laughs> you know? And when somebody says, that doesn't look like you, I go, yeah, it does look. I wave. And that's me. That's me in heaven. Now, um, <laughs> the, uh, but so it's not perfect. And this, this temple wasn't perfect at all. Because you see, the reality of the temple was Jesus. The reality of which the temple was, is Jesus, you see. And it's, it's walls and boxes and carved cherubim and all of that. But it's, it's really Jesus, that's what is the picture there. And when we look at that now, we see another step in all of this. Because, yes, it it is true that there was one who would be on David's throne. And and we know that very one. You know, I call it the Christmas passage. We always read it at Christmas time as well. We should, but other times as well. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. And then he goes on to say this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, that is the rule and reign about which we sang this morning, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, his rule that brings peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. All of this from the tribe of Judah, you see. So there it was. They lived in the anticipation of what was to come. We now live in the realization of what has come in Jesus. And that, you see, is our underpinning. That's, what's, that's what keeps us. That's what enables us, really. Enables us to live. So Jesus comes, sits on the throne, rules and reigns over sin and death. And we know, too, that he is the very presence of God among us. He is the temple. We read from John 1 earlier. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You know that you can translate that little expression dwelling as tabernacled or even templed among us. The presence of God is his temple. There in the Holy of Holies, it was a place that no one other than the high priest once a year could enter. Could you imagine? It would drive me crazy to know that there's this place in my city where I couldn't go. I would just wonder all the time what that would be like. What's it like in there? You know, can't I see it? The answer is no. God says, draw near to me, but only through this priest. You can't really get that close. And there was something about the blood of bulls and goats. I mean, it was helpful. I could see the logic of it. And even the grace in it, that God said, no, I'm holy, you're not. To be in my presence, something has to happen with your sin. So I'll take this innocent animal, this animal that doesn't deserve to die, no blemishes, a perfect animal. I'll take this animal in your place. And you go, okay. I don't get exactly the connection. I get blood and life. I get life and death. But I'm not generally a goat. 
Right? I don't relate there. And again, shadow. Something to come. Looking forward. And we know that Jesus is first our high priest and also our sacrifice. And so we know then, as I read at our time of confession, but when Christ appears, verse 11 of Hebrews 9, as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of, 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 of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It was through the blood of Jesus. And we go, oh, he perfectly, he's another, he's a man as I am. And his blood for me, got it. So we live, you see, in the joy of this realization that we can enter into the most holy place through Jesus. Do you remember? That when Jesus was crucified, you know this, when Jesus was crucified, that the curtain, the veil, that kept everyone but the high priest out of the Holy of Holies once a year, was ripped. That, that, that had to just be startling, right? Startling. And it was ripped from top to bottom, which is interesting. No comment on the scripture about that that God couldn't have ripped it differently, but it just seems interesting that he did it from top to bottom. Uh, he didn't need to get on the bottom of it and rip it, but he, the top to bottom. But you know that on that veil, on that curtain, was embroidered these cherubim. One of those obscure passages that our women will read through as they read through the Pentateuch uh, soon, if they haven't already. Embroidered these cherubim. You wonder why? Well, because the cherubim guarded the temple. Hold that. Do you remember? In the Garden of Eden. When Adam sinned and Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, who guards the garden? Cherubim. See, Eden was really the very first dwelling place of God among his people the very first temple. Adam, the very first priest, he was to guard it, he was to cultivate it. There he was. When he sinned, there was no longer any access into the presence of God. But, But then God says, I want my people, I want people to draw near to me. I have myself a people who will draw near and and declare my praises. So he calls Abraham, makes promises. Says to Moses, this is how you live in my midst. I'll give you the shadow of, of what the reality is that you may live in my presence. And then Jesus comes, who's the reality of all of that. And so then, boom, he opens up the very dwelling place of God to all of us, the Holy of Holies. And now what we're to do, what we're to do as we live in the joyful realization of what is to come is that we're to draw near to God. I read this earlier as our assurance of, 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 of forgiveness in Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great uh, priest over the house of God. So he's saying, here's, 
here's, here's, here's the logic of this. This has, has happened. That Jesus has opened up the very presence of God to us. Entrance into his presence uh, by his blood. He's our great high priest. So verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And that our bodies and our bodies washed with pure water, you see. Now, because of Jesus, it's ours to draw near, right into the presence of God. How do you do that? Versus by way of Jesus, you've got to know that. You've got to trust him. You've got to believe, yes, it is by way of Jesus. And so we enter, we draw near to him as we come to God through Jesus to him. That's why, for instance, before we read the scripture, we pray. Why? Because it's an acknowledgement that I'm coming, God, to your word through Jesus. And when we do pray, we use that expression. It sounds trite at times, but it's helpful. We don't have to use it. It's no magic formula, but it's helpful. We, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, usually we use it at the end. We probably ought to use it in the beginning. But it should be in our hearts, our minds as we're praying because we're drawing near to God through Jesus. I don't know the right, only through him. He broke open the curtain. He moved the cherubim out of the way so I could enter into the very presence of God. We draw near. We draw near as we come to worship. Are you thinking that as you enter this place each Sunday? Write it down somewhere. When I enter this place, I enter to draw near to God. Yes, to see our friends, that's helpful. Yeah, it's important to make sure you're here before anybody gets your pew. But it's really important to realize I'm drawing near to God. I have access to him through Jesus. That's the fuel. That's the foundation. That's everything that enables us then to live. We live in the joyful realization of what has happened. But yet we realize that this isn't the end either. And it's this joyful realization of what has happened, that Christ has come, that then we look forward and we realize that he's going to come again. And we wonder, how do I know that? I don't know about you, but there are more days than I like to admit that I wonder, is this ever going to change? Is it always going to be like this? It's, it's like I don't have a category in my brain for the return of Jesus and what that might look like. And I think, is it really going to happen? And how do I know? And the only reason I know is because he has come. And I look back to the cross at the realization as they looked at the repopulation of Jerusalem and what was happening there and said, look at what's happening. What's happening? The promises of God are being fulfilled. And now, Jesus. And so I wait with joyful anticipation of what is to come. We'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray for me, for us, that uh, we would understand this, that
we are really to draw near to you. And that we can draw near to you because of what Christ has done. And so, Father, I pray that you would enable us to know the freedom of entering into this most holy place. Father, I know that on a day like this, just in knowing our lives and knowing one another well, that people are going through significant difficulties. And I know when such difficulties come, there are dark nights and there are times when we wonder, is it all true? And is there any hope? And the answer, of course, is yes. We know there's hope because Christ has come. And we see in him the fulfillment of all the promises that you have made to us those realized and those still yet to come. And so I pray that as we wonder and as we find life difficult, that you would enable us to reflect upon the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for Ryan Kovar, God, that you would bless him and heal him of cancer, and Jarbo too, Marjorie Miller as well. We pray for Catherine Miller that you would heal her heart and that you would be with her parents as they think through the best course of action for her. Keep her safe. Give her health. Father, for those who are struggling in relationships, I pray that you would bring a great sense of your presence to them. That you would fill their loneliness, but yet you would enable them to be honest in their relationships and forgiving and restoring. Father, with people with financial needs, I pray that you would enable them too to see since Christ has come that you haven't forgotten them. They can rest in you even through a difficult trial. Father, for us as a church, as we Think through the world in which we live. We pray that you would give us great insight into how we can more effectively minister to each other and share Christ with those who haven't heard of him yet. That you would enable us to live in such a way that people would see the hope that we have and ask us that we may tell them of Jesus. In this I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you, there will be elders available to pray in these pews off to my left. Uh, Please come, allow them to pray with and uh, for you. That is one of the ways that together we draw near to God. So please come and um, pray with them if you have particular needs. Please receive this now as God's benediction. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine through his power that is at work within us, to be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, both now and always. And together let us sing.